Will you follow me? Will you follow me? That is often the question that is left hanging in the air when it comes to the message of Christ Jesus. Will we trust Him enough? Will we trust what He says, what He does, who He is, enough to follow Him? Because if we don't, well, we're following something else. We've aligned ourselves. We've made an alliance with something that is not Him, that is not His. We're rebellious. We're enemy combatants when we do not follow Him. And this week, I know that some people wonder what they're going to hear when they come to church, but especially whenever your Facebook lights up and the news sources have all different expert opinions on different things, you wonder what you're going to hear when you come to church and how are we to live. Sometimes we want to get all decked out and we want to put our soapbox up and we want to get mad and angry or we want to cry or we want to crawl up in a ball and wonder what is going on in the world around us and is there really any hope? If I follow this Jesus to the full extent in the middle of a world that is increasingly rebellious towards Him, increasingly saying He holds no real value in my life and I'd rather pursue all of the above other than the one who is above all, there is a problem. But what do we do as Christians? Some of you are know what I'm talking about. Some of you may be like, I haven't watched the news. I've just been, you know, in my own little world. But this week, there was a different handling of what we call sin according to the Scriptures, because the Bible does have lots to say about sexuality. It has lots to say about marriage. But there was a redefinition of that term this, this week. On Friday, the Supreme Court of our United States of America has boldly stated and put it in there that It is a constitutional right given to all for same-sex couples to now be married. No matter what state you're in, it is now a federally, national-recognized situation. Not a state's rights thing, um, not even a full religious rights thing, even though churches are not exempt, but given a bubble right now. How are we to respond to such things? Well, I would tell you, as your pastor, to respond with truth, grace, and love. To not overreact and hit the panic button and think, all right, here's another sign that Jesus is coming back. There are bad things that have happened in our culture. Indeed, there has. Um, It's not the worst thing that's ever happened in our world. Many, many people have waited for the return of Jesus, including those that were executed in a garden of a Caesar named Nero and burned to death. They definitely faced a, a tougher culture than we are facing. But it's one where we still hold up truth, grace, and love. It's still when we hold up the message of Jesus. And why? some people wonder why it's important. Why do churches get so bent out of shape? And and the whole reason is because, well, the state didn't create marriage. They may try to craft and redefine it, but they didn't create it. It's a God-created institution. It's a God-created relationship. And as God is the supreme judge and the supreme savior, he's the one that has the supreme decision on what this really looks like no matter how it's redefined in a legalistic view. And it's also important because the New Testament tells us that the picture of a husband willing to give him up for a wife and a wife willing to submit herself in love to a husband 
It's really the picture of Christ and His church. And so, not only is a role being changed, but the message is being defamed. The real message is being defamed. That's why it's so important. That's why it's not something that we should take lightly. But what this fully brings to light, what this fully reveals, as we've been talking about over the last few weeks, is that we live in a culture, in a world, we've been raised in this culture. Some of us still struggle with our ties to a world in need. A world that's, in all pictures, sick and in need of a remedy. The remedy of truth, the remedy of love, the remedy of grace, the remedy of the Gospel. We can look around and see so many broken things. We can tell they're broken because of the pain and the agony they have on our hearts. And I believe even what we've seen this week was not just the, the icing on the cake. I believe we were already torn and broken before a Supreme Court made a decision. We were broken in the middle of it and we'll be broken after it. All except for the grace of Jesus who brings the ultimate remedy. We will always struggle. No matter who's sitting in what chair or what office, in what building. No matter what colors they may light things up. The world will always be sick. It's not a matter of just a few election cycles or a few appointees. It's a matter of the world in need of the Gospel. Because the world we live in will always be at war except for the peace of Jesus. The world that we live in will always have pain and hurt and sickness except for the healing of Jesus. The war that we live in will always have hate except for the love and the redemption of Jesus. The world that we live in will always have isolation except for the grace and the embrace of an affectionate God. And this is what the Bible presents. The Bible doesn't just present what happened long ago. It presents why it's relevant to us today. I would ask you to turn with me into the letter written to Romans. Chapter 1 in your Bible. We're going to look at the writings of Paul. Again, we're going to be on the same text we've been in for the last two weeks. And I ask you to stand with me as we read God's Word in honor of Him. The book of Romans, more appropriate the letter to the church at Rome. Chapter 1, verses 16-25. through 25. Paul would write to his readers and to us who are here today. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Lord Jesus, use Your Word today as only You can. Help me be Your servant today. Speak to me. Speak to us. And Lord, help us to have a response that is pleasing and holy and compassionate and graceful towards You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, for those that have been here for a while, you know what I'm going to do at this point. We're going to talk about context because we don't want to read the the Bible, God's Word, we don't want to take it less than what it is and try to put our own spin and our own experience on it. Sure, it speaks to our time and our day as much as it did back then, but we need to see what was written in this specific time, in this specific language, in a specific place, in a specific date for a specific reason. And so we ask, what did God's Word say? It's one of the first questions of Bible study that we need to bring into our life. What did God's Word really say? And, and, and take that and examine it and then observe what are the implications of it? What impact did it have in that specific time, in that specific circumstance? What specifics were resulted from this being shared? And it's then, once we see those implications, we begin reaping the applications to our time, to our day. But we must never leave the Bible as something that just to entertain us or to give us happy, happy, joy, joy feelings or just to be enlightening but something that causes us to respond to God. And what Paul is writing, sometimes when we see this, when we see this Scripture, and sometimes when people paint it on billboards or post it on Facebook or whatever, it seems so almost hate-filled. It does. It seems almost too stark, too painful to be put there. But the, the truth of the Scriptures is that bold. It's almost such a, a, a great, big, bold declaration, almost like when the doctor says there's something wrong. You don't want to hear it, but you know you needed to, but it still stings. When the, when the doctor says, we can fight this, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to feel like death. You don't want to hear it, but it's there. But this is not a us versus them kind of text, as if all people are kind of separated and distinct from one another. All of us without Christ would be in this place. But those that have Christ have a remedy given to them. They are renewed. They are transformed. There is a difference. But those without Christ, the case has been made for where they will stay should they not know and respond positively to Jesus. So don't hear this as a us versus them kind of verse. Don't hear this as we should make war kind of verse. I know that's, that's kind of the whole idea that some people may spread around. You know, I've heard all kinds of things this week. Well, uh, this, these states should secede or you know, we should form our own country or we should move to this country, which isn't even better, any better state than this country. And, and all these different ideas as if we could choose to make the culture fully better by our own merit or our own location. I don't care if you're in the so-called Bible Belt of the South or, or in a blue state. Wherever you are, there's a need for Jesus. Wherever you are, there's people who need the remedy of Jesus. 
And we could choose as a church or as disciples to do really one of three things in this culture, in this day in which we sit. We could choose to be angry. And it's, there's such a thing as righteous anger. I get that. But we could hole up in our bubble, form our own little community and say, us versus them, you're not like us, you have to stay out. And just isolate ourselves and pretend like there's a world out there that isn't going to hell. Or some people would pretend and be like, I'm glad that world's going to hell and shame on them. I, I, I say that, shame on them. To limit and, and see less the grace of Christ that's available to all. We could do the other thing and just be like, okay, open doors, we'll have no policies, we'll not take any regard for God's Word, and we'll just do whatever to make us feel like we're accepted. But I will tell you, the least, some of the least attended churches, least attended places are those that have made those changes, and they're having to shut doors because it doesn't work. Nobody wants to go somewhere where they're lied to. They don't. Or we could choose the fact of what Paul is trying to communicate. Redemption through the remedy of Jesus. That says we will have compassion for the lost. We will see people in this state that they're in, just like someone going through cancer and, and want to come alongside of them and hold them up and lift them up and be with them. We will see them in their state and we'll choose to hold out truth and love and grace in reverence to God, but in gentleness with the person as First Peter 3.15 says. But we won't withstand presenting them the message of the power of the Gospel. The power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Because without it, they are wrath-receiving. Without it, they are truth-suppressing. Without it, they are evidence-rejecting. Without it, they are excuse-giving. Without it, they are foolish-living. Without it, they are false-worshipping. And such as we were until the day that we chose to follow Jesus. It wasn't us or them, as such as we were. But because of the remedy, we've talked about these things, we can move to being wrath receivers to wrath removed because Jesus took our place on the cross and everything that we were due, He took it once and for all by Roman punishment. We can have the remedy that takes us from being truth-suppressing, trying to hold it back, to being Truth unleashing. To find that truth is not something that holds us in bondage as we're taught to believe that if you follow the Scripture, you're going to be so limited. And yes, there are borders. Things that you should not cross. Lines that you should not dare even try to get near and try to say, is this far too far? Because God has said, look behind you. There's a whole world and a whole universe that I've given and unleashed to you. And why don't you focus on that instead of the little line ahead of you? And because of the remedy of Christ, we can see that new world opened up to us. Not only heaven that awaits us, but the world in which we have a purpose. That we see that we are God's workmanship created before time for His good works. We can see the truth sets us free when we partake in it. But what are some of the other things? What changes for us when we're evidence-rejecting? And what does that even mean for us to be evidence we're rejecting. Well, Paul puts it, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. God has done the job of being the perfect gatherer and displayer of evidence. Exhibit A, Your Honor. Exhibit B. Exhibit C. What are some of these things that God has 
made in his evidence. It says he's made it evident within them and evident to them. Well, one of the things that Paul says is that for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So that they are without excuse. So there's an evidence of God's design. Exhibit A in creation. I didn't put that on the board, but if you want to write these down, you can. I don't care. It's, it's for you, between you and the Lord. But Exhibit A is creation. That God has said, I have done something in creation that points towards me. When you look at the order of the world, how the clock seems to always be 24 hours, not 25 at some times and not uh, 37 other times, but 24 every single day. There's something clockwork about that. How could there not be someone that is perfectly designed that it not be at random? And, and that's such a case with the universe. You can time the planets to exactly the position they will be. There's something in creation. The heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands, Psalm 19.1 says. When we look around and see how summer, winter, fall, spring keep cycling over and over again. I know some of you are already dreading winter coming, but you know what? You know it's coming. Why? Because it's scheduled that way. Not because the calendar says so, but because God made it so. Even something as little as a banana can point to the fact that we have an intelligent Creator that has done the marvelous things by the work of His hands. There's something powerful about His being. Exhibit A is creation. It tells them, and the evidence that gets rejected and tried to push away is that God did not create it. And God did not have a design for it. And yes, I, I know I hold to the, the view that I am a, a young earth creationist. I am unapologetic for that. But I also use the apologetics of Scripture to point towards that. Um, I hold that truth dear because to lessen one part of the Bible is to lessen many parts of the Bible. And I shared with our group this morning, some people want to know where's all the scientific formulas. Some people want to know where's all the algebraic equations. Where's all the grammatical syntax diagramming in the Scriptures. The Bible is not a textbook as it speaks to those areas. But to the areas it does speak, it holds all authority. And we must realize that when we hold the Word of God in our hands, even to where it speaks of creation, and not try to lessen one part of the Bible. Because when we lessen one part of the Bible to a lesser interpretation than God's presented, then we open up the door to lessen every other area, such as where is God's right and rule in marriage. Exhibit B is the conscience. God has made it evident not to them, not only to them by the world that has been made, but evident within them. And that's an interesting wording there. But I think about how mankind has a conscience, how we see right and wrong. And I know some people have varying degrees on what is right and what is wrong, but um, you can pretty much talk to anyone and they will tell you what's absolutely right and wrong in their eyes. Even if they do a whole what's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is true for me stance, they'll tell you what they believe is wrong. And then you could say, well, if it's not true for me, does that mean it's not wrong anymore? And they may say, yeah, because I've, I've met some people like that. But in our conscience, something declares unto us there's a natural law about what is right and what is wrong. And it's not just a bunch of social norms that have developed over the ages to where we've somehow by our own merit, by our own deed, move from barbarism and primalism to now 
one of the most advanced societies in this country anyways. It's the conscience. It's God showing us what is good. The book of Micah. Micah the prophet would be called to speak to the people of Israel about how to follow God. He says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. Not just through the presentation of the law. Not just through the words of the prophets. Not just through the civilization. He's He's shown you what is good. Even children have an innate sense of right and wrong, fair and unfair. And what does the Lord require of you? By showing you what is good, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Exhibit B, the conscience. In our conscience, we have a longing to have questions answered. Somewhere within us, we seek answers. Not just on what is right and wrong, but we seek our origins. Where do we come from? I mean, who do we really come from? There's people that I know will spend ages and ages wanting to know their family tree and and all this kind of thing, but they want to know the bigger picture. Where do I come from? Because it gives them a sense of belonging. People want to know and answer the question, um, who am I? What is my identity? What is my purpose? Why do we struggle with those things? If we were just primal beings, wouldn't we just live, eat, procreate, and die? No, we want to know if we have a purpose to do something. That's why some people say, is this job for me? Is this calling for me? It's not just because of skills and capabilities. It's because of purpose. Something in our conscience has revealed that. We want to know what is the meaning of life. Is is something supposed to be accomplished? and, and Is this going somewhere? We want to know what is morality. Is there a right and wrong? And, and, and whenever your heart is burdened and angered for the things that are unjust, whether you see it on the TV or Facebook or whatever, it's just a part of your heart that God has put in you saying, yeah, you see things that pain me. And you want to celebrate with other things too because there's a sense of joy with following God, but hard to celebrate the things that we know to be biblically wrong. We also want to know the question of destiny. What's going to happen after we die? Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes, is all about that. It's a whole book about worldview and trying to find what, finds, what has meaning in life. And this one person searching it and he's finding over and over again the answers that he's trying to be meaningless, 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 vanity, vanity, vanity. He can't seem to grasp it. And he sees that within him, he says, God has made everything appropriate in its time. A time for peace, a time for war, a time for laughter, a time for mourning. But he has also set eternity in our heart. God has set eternity and a longing for this. So exhibit B would be our conscience, this rejection of what's actually within us. Exhibit C would be the content of His Word. Rejecting the content that's there. The Scriptures tell a story and they provide not only what has happened, but they provide the promise and the revelation of God's provision. The Old Testament foretells this is what happened and now this is how God has promised to make a way. And the New Testament says now God has brought it into conclusion and made the way. Now walk in light of such a great promise. I mean, think about the content of God's Word, how marvelous it is what we hold and not take for granted what has been so accessible to us. Again, this morning, I told them they were having a preview of the sermon, but I think about how, for, how much for granted I took this in my life for so, so long. Something that has really only been made available to English-speaking people for the last 500 years. And you say, that's a long time. It is. 
But 2,000 years is a lot longer. Think about how much time it was without people that spoke English. And now think about all over the world, there are places that don't even have a copy in their own language. And yet God has provided this Word, glorious in our home, something that took over 1,400 years to compile, something that had 40-plus different authors, something that was written in three different languages, on three different continents, and yet it's seamless because God has made it so. And we don't need to reject the evidence of His Word. Exhibit D would be the Christ. Not only the content of the Word, but Christ. God has surrounded our world. He has, by His Word, surrounded our world with this big neon sign pointing to His Son. Now, we may not see it physically, but the questions that we desire to be answered, where do we come from, who we are, what are we here for, how shall we live, where are we going, they are answered all in Christ Jesus. Now, I would be careful to say Jesus is the answer to everything. Jesus is my final answer. I'd be careful because a comedian kind of got me on that one. He's talking about, is Jesus really the answer to everything? If so, then how do you answer the question, who stole my $15? Probably wouldn't be Jesus. (laughs) He would know, but anyways. But Christ has surrounded us with the answers that we are seeking for these other questions. So how does the Gospel remedy us? How does it transform us? Well, if we are a lost world is all about evidence rejecting, then a saved world, those that have chosen to, to receive the grace of Jesus, they've placed their faith and surrendered to Him, should be all about evidence embracing. If a lost world is all about evidence rejecting, then the church should be the foremost say we're all about evidence embracing. We want to help point people in the right direction to the Word of God so that they will know the Word, they would know the Lord, they would be able to see the culture through the correct lenses. I mean, think about it. If you had glasses and all you're seeing the world through is, is, is if you needed them, and all you're seeing the world through is lust-tinted glasses, then all you're going to see the world through is sexual-viewed glasses. That's it. That's how you're going to perceive the world. And if the world does not perceive and fix your sexual affiliation, that's how it's going to be. If you want to see the world through just complete reasoning, I believe you can point you to the Word, but all your choices are going to be filtered to that. What we need is a world to see their culture, their home, their communities through God-filtered glasses through lenses that help give them a corrective perspective according to the Lord. And find ways to make these answers connect. That's one reason we do the truelife.org thing. I know it seems like a shameless commercial in the middle of a sermon, but I'm really impressed with this site. I'm really impressed with this ministry, and I pray, pray that it's been useful to you. Now as a tool to say, hey, come check out our church, but to help people begin the conversation when they don't know where to look. When all they've been taught is this is how this world came to be through millions and billions of years. When they're taught this is how you are to feel and and to do your own thing when it comes to sexuality or marriage. When they're taught this is what um, all these disagreeing people say when the Bible actually presents agreement. When they're taught that history does not confirm the Bible but really 
the more recent history in archaeology is actually confirming what the Word says. It's a good tool, not only for them out there, but for us in here. Because we don't want to be the evidence rejecting or the evidence ignorant, but the evidence embracing and presenting and saying, I can tell you, and I tell you not just because I feel it in my heart, but because I've sought out the answer for myself that what Jesus has said is wholly true. And you can wholly trust Him because what He said is wholly true. Jesus has presented to us the promise. Come now. Let us reason together. For though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. And then He presents us all this stuff, all this evidence for us to embrace and take to heart and say, no matter how the world around me may be shattering, the solid foundation, the solid truth of God will never fail. And you know what, church? We have that promise. No matter what goes on, in front, goes on ahead of time, because of the evidence of God's Word, I can trust God wins. God wins. And so will His church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You so much for this day. I pray that, that as we... Uh, as we seek Your will, as we seek Your hope, as we seek what You've presented about who You are to us, that we would just take the time to, to trust You. That we would take the time to be obedient to You. And God, right now as Your church, as I pray, Lord, I'm praying for those in this room that are, that are dealing with, they feel like they're dealing with loss and defeat. They feel like they're dealing with a fear of rejection. They feel like they're dealing with people looking at them as if they're people of nonsense because of what they believe about Jesus. And God, I pray, I, I sincerely pray this. I know that what we do and what we believe will not always make sense to a world without you. I know that, God. I know that there are things that we will trust in that just will seem absolutely countercultural to the world that we live in. But God, my prayer is this, as people who have the remedy of grace, the remedy that is Jesus Christ, God, help us not be evidence-rejecting, but help us to be some of the most well-versed people in the world because we have submitted ourselves to the study of Your Word and to even knowing the things that point to say that Your Word is indeed the firm foundation that we would embrace the evidence, that we would be able to give a defense for the hope that was in us, within us, yet with gentleness and reverence. And I pray that for your church right now. And Lord, for a lost world, I pray that we would not try to keep that message away from them. Help us, Lord, not to just come into a holy huddle and, and make ourselves a turtle shell, but help us to be fully well aware of the world in need of you and fully open to sharing who you are with them. And for their questions, help get us prepared. Help us take advantage of the tools you've put in our time, that you've made accessible in our time, God, to make you known. And God, while that could be a lot of preparation on our part, it is not without merit. And for the hearer, God, 
while we can present till our lips turn blue. God, I pray for just a movement of Your Holy Spirit upon people to soften hearts, to open ears, to clarify eyes, and to make them ready to be prepared to hear the Word of the Lord and to make way for the name of the Lord in their life. Help us, Jesus, never to forget them because You did not forget us. And God, I thank You that You are not a God that comes to condemn, that comes to compete with all these other worldviews. I'm thankful that the Word tells us that You're the God that comes to conquer, to win, and to complete what You have started. So God, complete Your work in us. As we submit to You, as we give You this time to respond to You, I pray that's exactly what we would do because of the love that we have received from You. A love that loves You with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. And God, may it start with me. In Jesus' name.